0: Welcome back to the Bitcoin Layer. I'm Nick Batia, and today we are pleased to bring back Jacob Shapiro. He's one of the sharpest geopolitical minds out there, and we're really lucky to be able to pick his brain today. Jacob, thanks for coming back on.
1: That's nice of you to say, and uh, thank you for your uh, endurance in pursuing me because we were supposed to do this a couple weeks ago, and I totally forgot. So I appreciate you uh, <laughs> not thinking that I'm a total flake for missing that one.
0: It's all good. We're all we're all just trying to do our best here. Uh, Jacob, I want to start by letting the audience know that I read your newsletter that you put out every weekend. Uh, It's a free product and it is a headline of what you do, which is geopolitical study and analysis uh, specifically for the investment universe. So thank you for your work and continued analysis. And I want to get right into a couple of the major issues that we talk about. Now, the one that grabbed my eye was the potential move towards some normalization or some positives in the U.S.-China relationship. So you mentioned that we still have a backdrop in which the U.S. and China are at each other's throats in some ways, but that maybe we saw a turn or we're seeing some sort of turn. So can you start there, please?
1: Yeah, and I'm glad you're enjoying the global situation report. It's modeled after the, the daily presidential briefing um, that the president gets every single day. Um, and I, I used models from the 60s and 70s to build it. I don't know what the briefing looks like today, but that's, that's the structure of it. And the issue that we're talking about Um, It's so important because it's built on this thing called our knowledge platform, which is a database database of things as they develop over time. And the reason I want to make that point is because all the things we're going to talk about, and especially this issue that you decided to start off with here, U.S.-China relations, it could change next week. It could change tomorrow. Um, One of the things that I think differentiates me from geopolitical analysts is I don't come on here and say, I have a crystal ball. I'm going to tell you exactly what's going to happen. You really have to respond to different stimuli. And that's what we got last week. Um, U.S.-China relations have been terrible for months. Um, The Biden administration talked about normalizing ties with China. They even floated this idea of withdrawing some of the Trump-era tariffs. They were talking about that last summer. And then what happened in quick succession? You had Nancy Pelosi went and visited Taiwan against the White House's wishes. Biden said he didn't want to do it, but he didn't feel like he could you know, corral her back in. Then they tried to fix things again, and then boom, you had the spy balloon incident. And within all of that, you had all these China hawks within the administration. Not only, um, not only were they deciding to keep the Trump era tariffs on China, they wanted more tariffs, and they wanted to add more companies to the entities list, and they wanted more weapons for Taiwan and all these other things. Um, and the reason I think last week was so important, and it's a very, very small development, but there were unannounced talks between Jake Sullivan and Wang Yi in Vienna about two weeks ago. And by by itself, that's not a huge deal. Like top level officials from both sides talk all the time. What was interesting, though, was that someone in the White House decided to leak details of the meeting to the Washington Post, and specifically to David Ignatius. And the reason that that's important is because Biden is very old school with how he uses the media. He likes to talk to columnists. He still thinks of, he doesn't think of the world as Twitter and social media and Reddit. He still lives in a world where the opinion pages of the major newspapers are where like most people get their news and that's how he tries to influence things. So the fact that they gave David Ignatius these nuggets, automatically that's telling you this is probably coming from the White House and they're telling you something important. And the line that really struck out to me, it was the penultimate paragraph where it said, Biden didn't want to be the one that instigated a cold war between China and the United States. Now, as we say back home on the farm with me, the horse is already out of the barn door there. It's a little late for that sort of talk. But That is a market change in how the White House has been talking about thinking about China in general. Now, I think for all, we can talk about all the different structural reasons that I think relations are probably not going to improve, but this is one of those low probability, high magnitude events. If US-China relations were to improve, if this was the first sign that the United States was willing to take steps to repair the US-China relationship, it's hard to exaggerate what that would do to the global economy. My thesis about multipolarity and deglobalization and all these other things that's been happening, if you got the US and China to actually cooperate with each other again, all those things go out the window and we would have to reassess so where the where the global economy is going because those two economies be, could be working together again. So it's it's a low probability event. I would be the first one to tell you, here. here's the litany of structural reasons why it's probably not gonna lead to anything, but it was a very distinct change in tone and in messaging from the top echelons of the US government. And for that reason, I think it was important to note.
0: And that's why it caught our eye, because we follow your school of thought in which these two countries are facing a, a multi-decade fight over technology and resources and we're staring down the barrel of that. Meanwhile, something actually positive happens for the first time in a few years. And I would say at least one administration. So um, definitely something to note. But with that being said, I know your opinion on Taiwan. We talked about that last time. You're more in the uh, at least 2027 camp. And I think that, you know, quickly for the audience, that basically means that the Chinese naval military power is at least four years away from being able to conduct an attack on Taiwan. So bring the audience up to speed. Is there any change there? And what do you feel uh, about the latest going on with Taiwan-U.S.-China relations? This
1: is one of the structural reasons that U.S.-China relations probably won't improve because just in the last couple of weeks, amidst this tonal change from the White House, You've, number one, had the White House come out and say they're going to use executive authority to send more weapons to Taiwan, the same authority they're using to send weapons to Ukraine without having to go through a bunch of hoops. They want to do the same thing with Taiwan, about a half a billion dollars worth. I'm I'm sure there will be be more. Um, Last week, also, Taiwan and the United States uh, said that they had concluded their first round of negotiations on a trade pact. And this gets to the real... Irrationality of the US Taiwan relationship because how can you have a trade pact with a country that you think technically doesn't exist? Because that's what US policy is right now that Taiwan doesn't exist as a country, and yet you're sending Taiwan weapons, you are engaging in trade negotiations with them. All of these are things that make China think that you're full of shit. (laughs) This is the technical way of saying it. If you go read Chinese state media, go look at the Global Times, they laughed off. Uh, the Biden tonal shift by saying there's a lack of sincerity here. This is totally hypocritical. If you want to get China's attention, change your behavior on some of these things. Now, that said, look, I I think it's not China's military capability is the thing that makes me comfortable about being relatively cavalier about predicting that there won't be war between um, China and Taiwan over the next couple of years. But I also think that's just not how Chinese strategy works. I think we really have to look at the Hong Kong playbook and how China reasserted control over Hong Kong in the 1970s and 80s and apply that to Taiwan. It is much less important what China doing in the South China Sea and which ships are sailing where. The, the boring stuff that is actually more important is look at the brain drain from Taiwan to the Chinese mainland. Look at the economic and trade ties that China is building in Taiwan itself. Look at all the engineers that they are coaxing to go from Taiwan to China with promises of high salaries and penthouses in Shanghai and all these other things. Um, that's the fait accompli that China is really betting on. They are betting that in the long run, They care more about Taiwan than the United States, Japan, anybody else in the region. And maybe it will take them 20 years, maybe it'll take them 50 years. Eventually they'll be able to do the same thing they did with Hong Kong, which was when the British lease was coming up. Um, Margaret Thatcher went to go tell Deng Xiaoping was the preeminent leader of China then that she wanted to renew the lease. And Deng said, okay, well, if you do that, we're gonna turn off the water and the electricity and you know, went through the list of things that they were gonna do. But sure, you can you can renew the lease if you'd like Hong Kong at that level. And even Margaret Thatcher, the Uber British nationalist who picked a war in the Falklands, you know, to build up um, British nas- nationalist credentials, had to say, Okay, it's yours. Like I, I know that I can't fight for this thing. So that's why I think I think that's the move that China's making. And it's not as sexy as, oh, this ship or this aircraft carrier, but it's really about. Look at the you know the number of countries that recognize Taiwan is dwindling. Uh, the ways that China's been able to attract Taiwanese talent away from the island—that's um, important. We also we have a Taiwan election coming up here in the next—I forget if it's uh, this year or next year—but you have a Taiwan election coming up, and the KMT, which saying they're pro-Chinese is a little too reductive, but they are more pro-China um, than the current party. Uh, they've been doing well in the polls, and they've been doing well in the polls not because they're talking up China, but because they're talking up economic interests for Taiwan, whereas the current party, the DPP, has been negotiating trade deals with the United States and putting Taiwan in the middle of all this. And I, the last thing I'll just say there is, you know, if you read the polls in Taiwan, they're extremely clear. The Taiwanese don't want to declare themselves an independent country. They don't want to rejoin the Chinese mainland and become part of the People's Republic of China. They just want the status quo. They just want to be left alone. And so they're probably going to elect leaders who will try and continue the status quo rather than that that try to position them in this geopolitical battle between giants.
0: And yet you say that China is powerless to stop the U.S.-Taiwanese negotiations and and trade deals. So how do we reconcile these two?
1: Well, they are. They can't do anything. If, If the United States and Taiwan want to have a trade deal, they're going to have a trade deal. And China can you know, go after uh, another U.S. company and prohibit it from its markets has happened to Micron in the last couple of weeks. They can go after U.S. consulting groups. They can uh, send ships through regions that will make people angry, but they have no leverage here over the United States. They can't change anything there. So in some ways, if, if China does too much, it actually ruins its long-term plan. If you go back to the third Taiwan Strait crisis, this was the mid-90s. Clinton was president. Uh, there was a major I- issue over Taiwan, It had to do with um, uh, the Taiwanese president then visiting my alma mater, Cornell University, and whether the U.S. government was going to grant him a visa to go speak. And uh, China got very upset. Um, They sent warships into the Taiwan Strait. They did some shelling on some unoccupied Taiwanese islands and things like that. And what happened? They actually emboldened. Uh, The anti-China camp within Taiwan itself, politically, the next election, that anti-China camp did much better than they'd ever done before. And China kind of realized then, okay, like we really do have to play the slow game. Um, The the way that you square those two things is that they're not equal. China's thinking in terms of, okay, for the next 20 years, like we're going to continue building inroads in Taiwan. And this issue is going to be more important to us than it is going to be to the median voter in the United States just because Taiwan and the U.S. have a trade agreement, that's not going to affect that over the long term. And just because Taiwan and the U.S. have a trade... And by the way, they don't have a trade agreement yet. They just finished the first round of negotiations. So we'll see what actually gets agreed to. But just because they have a trade agreement that doesn't mean that the United States is going to come to Taiwan's aid. It doesn't mean that the United States is going to prevent Taiwan from being pulled further into China's orbit. So it's important. It's a sign of China's weakness today. Um, but it also in some ways explains to you exactly why China has to play this long game. It doesn't really have any other options.
0: Great. Now you say that China's still the world's factory and the movement of the Chinese one above seven, and that is weaker mm-hmm. against the U S dollar. Is a natural is a basically a natural sign that China still is highly dependent on exports and being the world's factory. So talk to us about the Chinese economy, where you see the Chinese economy right now, why is the one weakening versus the dollar? Is that an explicit policy move or is it somewhat more market driven uh, or balance of trade driven? And uh, what can you um, extract from that?
1: Yeah, My views on this have been evolving. Um, so if I sound a little bit, uh, I, I won't sound distracted, but if I sound a little all over the place, it's because my own views on this are changing right now. Um, I've been reading a lot of Michael Pettis lately, and if your audience hasn't discovered Michael Pettis yet, he really is a probably the most thoughtful Western economist writing about the Chinese economy in general. And I think too often um, what the media gets wrong is they're thinking about China or the United States or these different economies in a silo. And even though I think we're entering an era of deglobalization, right now, today, we're sort of at the high watermark of globalization, and you can't really speak about any of these economies without speaking about the other. So the Chinese economy and the U.S. economy, even if they are decoupling, even if they're moving moving in opposite directions, they are still inextricably linked today. So China has major economic problems that come from being the world's factory. They are export-oriented. It was all about, you know, they can produce products cheaper than everybody else, and that's how they're going to do things. The problem with that is it's sort of a treadmill to nowhere, so you have to keep on finding export markets to go to. Uh, How do you ascend global value chains? How do you start to say, okay, we're going to pay Chinese workers more, and we're going to make more complicated things in China? And not only that, Chinese companies are going to sell these Chinese goods to Chinese consumers, these hundreds of millions of people within China that make McKinsey's and Bain's and, all, and Starbucks and all these other US companies salivate, right? Because they see, oh my God, a Chinese middle class that literally is bigger than the entire population of the United States. Um, China wants to move towards that. It wants to move towards building up Chinese companies, ascending global value chains. It doesn't want to be the low cost producer of manufactured goods in general. Um, much easier said than done, especially in a country where it's not democracy that gives the Chinese Communist Party legitimacy, it's not communism, it's not Taiwan, it's about economic prosperity. The social contract in China is the Chinese Communist Party guarantees stability and the millions, hundreds of millions of Chinese people will continue to have more prosperity. And this wrenching shift that we're talking about here it's going to be very, very difficult on the Chinese economy. So actually what you would want to see out of the Chinese economy is more consumption and the government supporting more consumption and higher wages and more fiscal stimulus and things like that. Not a weakening yuan and better Chinese exports and more focus on exporting things abroad, that ironically, is what has China on its current path right now, which is unsustainable at a fiscal level, at a debt level, when you look at sort of all those other different things. And the reason I say you, know, you can't look at China in a silo because the flip side of that is the United States. You know, the United States has a trade deficit because China has a trade surplus. All these things are tied inextricably together. So the reason the Yuan is weakening is because the dollar is strengthening. The reason that China can't make this pivot is because its economy still is built on globalization and on global trade. So as much as Xi Jinping might wanna do all the things I just talked about, doing that in practice without setting off a revolution, (laughs) that's very, very difficult. And I think that's one of the reasons Xi Jinping has basically become an emperor. Um, He can't brook any compromise right now. The things he has to do to assure China's future, they will be very unpopular and they will fundamentally challenge the narrative of Chinese prosperity that's been there in place for three or four decades. That, I think, is what his game is about and where China's going from here.
2: The Bitcoin layer is sponsored by Foundation Devices. Foundation Devices are the creators of the Passport Bitcoin hardware wallet, the Bitcoin hardware wallet that you already know how to use guys it's got a gorgeous design it's got a very sleek interface very great screen directional pad that everyone knows how to use it makes bitcoin storage easy and accessible to just about everybody if you've been put off in the past from taking your bitcoin off exchanges which we highly advise that you do your bitcoin isn't really there these are fractionally reserved institutions look no further this is extremely simple everyone already knows how to use it right out of the box and better yet you can get ten dollars off your purchase when you use code bitcoin at checkout go to the bitcoinlayer.com layer slash foundation to get yours today now on with the video
0: what are some of the pain points that you think xi jinping will go to first here and and when does that materially start to affect the chinese population It already
1: has. Um, He started with the tech companies and regulating the tech companies and making sure that they also devoted certain portions of their profits to social stability and harmony and things like that. Then he came for the the property developers. Uh, The Chinese government in 2018, 2019 warned the property developers we have new rules it's not just going to be business as usual. So the prop, the Evergrande, all that, all those things that happened in the last year that freaked markets out. That's because the Chinese government said, no, you don't just get a blank check. If you were doing these things that we didn't like, you know, uh, you were going to face real problems. Uh, this year, it's probably the year of local government debts. So if you look at different local governments, especially in more impoverished regions of China, they have built up tons of debt and they've just expected beijing to continue bailing them out you're already seeing signs from beijing and chinese banks eh, we're not so willing to do that anymore you're going to have to take your medicine and learn like the property developers did as well um, another the, all of this though in general the sort of bigger way to look at this is that she has to engineer a massive redistribution of wealth from a very very wealthy coast the, the chinese coast these major mega cities on the chinese coast they're some of the most they are more advanced than some american cities i'm sitting here in new orleans i wish i had the infrastructure of a chinese port city it's ridiculous compared to them but if you as you go further inland in china the more you get into a third world country that a place where people are living on one and two dollars a day and those two things coexist in the same thing what she has to do is he has to transfer all of that wealth from the coast he's got to transfer it to the interior without completely upsetting Um, the the stability that the Chinese Communist Party has presided over. And you might think that, well, isn't that what communism was designed for? I thought that communism was supposed to be about the redistribution of wealth. And that just goes to show you that China's communist, basically a name only. It's state-led capitalism. And what's really going to happen here, ironically, is that Xi Jinping is going to have to take that wealth that was generated on the coast, and spread it out more evenly, because if he can't, if the coast becomes wealthier and more powerful than the interior, then you'll see what's happened over and over and over again in Chinese history, where different regions start to buck the center, and one region's going to want to trade abroad, and another region's going to be mad, and peasants rise up from the, the interior. I mean, this is an old story sort of in Chinese history. But so the, the one thing to keep in mind, what does she have to do? Redistribution of wealth. And, you know, if that sends shivers down spines in China, just as it does in a U.S. audience, nobody wants to hear (laughs) that phrase and think that stability is
0: close behind. Well, it's a multi-year story, and we'll definitely be following along and hope to bring you back in the future to keep updating us on this issue. Now, I want to shift gears to India from China. Uh, You focused in your latest newsletter on some of the developments in India I liked the line when you said that India will succeed in spite of itself. I found that to be entertaining and kind of close to home when you see some of the problems, some of the infrastructure, and we can even get into India under Modi and some of the evolution that we've seen there with India as a secular nation. You talk about the U.S. companies coming into India and betting big. Now, they're doing this. Why? and what do you expect from this move
1: they're doing it because india is one of the only economies that has the same level of scale that china had so a lot of us companies for good reason are afraid that what just happened to micron in the last couple of weeks is going to happen to them also wages in china have gone up and the chinese communist party is no longer just about making it easy for foreign companies to come in and do business and pay low wages to chinese workers to export things abroad like i said they want to ascend that global value chain um, the thing is, you know, you might say it's easy to reshore, nearshore, find different places to to build up manufacturing. It's actually really, really difficult when you start to look at the countries in the world that have the scale, that have the labor class, that is educated enough to do it and that you can pay wages that still allow you to to keep margins. India is one of the only economies out there that's like that. Now um, that that's sort of, that's what India really does have going for it. It has the size and it has the scale. Um, ironically. What India doesn't have going for it is it doesn't have that centralized rule of law or stability that the the Chinese Communist Party was able to enforce during the 90s and the early 2000s. The reason that everybody wanted to go to China was because China was better at these things than everybody else. The Chinese government made it easy for foreign investors to come in. That is not what the Indian government is doing. And I think some of this has to do um, with the, the hangover from British colonialism in India. You know, a a very, very small British force was basically able to bring India to heel. The British Empire, probably, um, the sun should have set on it in the mid-1800s, and the British Empire got really another hundred years uh, from just profiting from and taking resources from India and things like that. And India doesn't want to do that again, and India, if you look at their policies, They're already talking about protectionist policies. What is Narendra Modi's big signature initiative? It's the self-reliance initiative. It's not trade globalization initiative. It's self-reliance. So you're seeing a lot of announcements from U.S. companies that are interested in India. I I work with some of these companies on a consulting basis, and I can tell you the, the yarn that media... Publications like to spin. It's nice and it's very good PR, but in practice, it's very difficult. There's a lot of bureaucracy. There's a lot of red tape. There's these Indian government protectionist priorities that we talked about. The infrastructure is terrible. Um, even the Indian government's known it's terrible for decades. Hasn't been able to do anything about it. Sometimes companies are even they're saying they're moving things to India, but really they're just they're just taking components from China and then sending them over to India for assembly. You know, you're you're not actually changing all these things that much. Um, so it, it really depends on the company. It really depends on the vertical. I think that India is not the catch-all be-all um, that that sort of American companies think it's going to be. But that point that I made about, um, you know, succeeding in spite of itself, my business partner, Rob, he also likes to say quantity has a quality all of its own. That's what India has going for. It's got a billion plus people who are highly motivated, who are well-educated, who, you know, who can do this next phase of re-globalization, whatever we want to call it. Um, that that's the reason that India, in spite of all its, in spite of all of its disadvantages, should do well.
0: And we see Elon Musk and Tesla look into a big expansion in India. So, what do you make of the Elon Musk comments coming out of India?
1: Um, I'm I'm not sure what Musk is seeing there, uh, because and again, I, I'm sort of a uh, skeptic is the wrong word, but I, I'm. Skeptical about the future of electric vehicles and about Tesla in general, and I say that because today, with the technology that we have today, and this might change tomorrow. Um, on our CI knowledge platform, uh, last week we had news about Chinese researchers were looking at a sodium ion battery for electric vehicles. If we can have a sodium ion battery for electric vehicles, everything I'm about to say is wrong, uh, and don't listen to me. And you know, go go long electric vehicles. But today, with the technology that we have today. Electric vehicles need all sorts of natural resources that are really hard to get. Oil is just one resource and we know where a lot of it is and with shale, you can get it in other places, but the things that have to go into batteries, like everything from cobalt to copper to platinum group metals, when you put all those things together, um, it's not easy to get access to those materials and those resources. And the reason I say I don't quite understand what Musk is saying is because India has some of those resources, but not a ton of them. India is not a catch-all. Most of the world's cobalt is in the Democratic Republic of Congo. So you can build the best car factories in the world if you want in India. If you don't have a, an, if you don't have access to cobalt, um, it's probably not going to work unless you invent some kind of battery that doesn't need cobalt anymore. Um, and by the way, just this week, uh, the DRC president is going to China to sign deals about mineral accesses and resources and things like that. And Ch- even though most of the sort of cobalt ore is in the DRC and that's where it's mined, China is the one that refines it. So it doesn't matter again, if you're building car factories in India, if you can't get access to the cobalt. Another good example of this is nickel. There's a shortage of nickel because nickel is another one of these um, things that is very, very important to batteries. And Musk has talked about this as well. He's talked to the Indonesian government about trying to figure that out because Indonesia has a lot of nickel and Indonesia has been very clever. Indonesia has said, great, uh, Tesla, Chinese automakers, all you other companies, we're happy to give you the nickel that you want, but you have to vertically integrate here. You have to build the processing facilities here and the battery facilities here and the car production facilities here otherwise we're not exporting to you you can kind of go stuff it um you know there are other places that we can talk about that have lots of nickel that are interesting and geopolitically significant but that's just a way of saying the if the electric vehicle revolution is really going to take off we have to figure out these materials issues and for me that's that's the harder thing to square. If it's just about finding workers and building factories for cars, yeah, I bet Musk and Tesla can definitely make it worth the Indian government's while to do that. But until you've secured access to all the resources that go into that, I don't know what we're really talking about. We're sort of putting the cart in front of the horse.
0: Before we come back to the United States, um, we have to turn our attention to the war in Ukraine, increased involvement of Germany in this conflict, and you said before we went on air that we shouldn't be normalizing what's happening in Ukraine by uh, skipping it as a topic. So what do our audience need to know uh, about what's going on in Ukraine right now?
1: Do we have to go back to the United States? I find US politics so maddening right now.
0: Oh, I promise it'll just be on the economy, Jacob.
1: Oh, great, well, that's still pretty political, but... um. Look, the, the Russia-Ukraine war is the biggest war in Europe since World War II, full stop. And it's happening every single day and people have fatigue, um, but it's still happening. And Ukraine is gearing up for a major counteroffensive to go after the lands that Russia's conquered from it. So that's what's happening right now. And developments are changing sort of week by week, even if they aren't getting to the, the sort of front page of the news, or if you know, people care more about Taylor Swift or the debt seal, like th- this war is on. And there are big changes. Um, the thing that you're mentioning here about Germany, uh, I go back in uh, the month before Russia invaded. So January of last year, um, the Ukrainians were telling their European allies, we think Russia is gonna invade, we need help. Please send weapons, please send support. Uh, the Germans said, yes, we will send you 5,000 helmets. Not not ironic, like this this will help. We, we don't send weapons because we are pacifist Germans who have never harmed anyone in the history of our country. We're gonna give you 5,000 military helmets. Uh, fast forward to last week and the German government promised something like 2.7, 2.9 billion euros uh, to Ukraine in terms of weapons and tanks and all these other things. You also have German um Industrial companies talking about setting up JVs in Ukraine to build tanks, to service tanks, to give um, to give support to this new weapon space that Ukraine has to use to defend itself in general. The reason that's so important is because you've seen Germany now do a complete and total 360, and it's been slower than maybe Ukraine wanted and slower than some critics of Ukraine wanted. But Germany's basically telling you there, no, we're going to support Ukraine, the defense minister literally said, as long as it takes. Um, So Germany is thinking Ukraine can win this war and it's going to give them more weapons. After that um, newsletter came out, uh, the White House came out and said, "Okay, F-16s are now on the table, too. So at first there was no tanks. Now Ukraine has tanks Then it was no fighter jets. Okay, well, now the U.S. just said F-16s can be transferred to Ukraine in general. Um, So what this looks like to me is that Ukraine is going to attempt a major counteroffensive and they keep on adding more weapons and more resources and more allies who are not afraid Sort of the political winds have changed there to continue supporting Ukraine. And that puts in, you know, what happens on the ground militarily? What happens to Russia if it loses a war against Ukraine? What happens if Putin falls? What happens to Russia's nuclear weapons if there isn't a centralized force in the Kremlin to police these things? Um, just yesterday, there was a lot of news on social media about... Um, it, it's unclear what it is, but it looks like it's a it's a militia or some kind of faction of Russian citizens in Ukraine's territory that actually attacked Russian territory in Belgorod. So, you know, we're already starting to trip some of these wires where it's not, we're not talking about, you know, recently conquered territory. We're talking about Russian territory itself. So um, for all these reasons, I, I think it's really, really important to watch the Russia-Ukraine war. Um, the last thing is that, you know, if you're investing in commodities or if you're investing in companies that are related to commodities, the Russia-Ukraine war is still got the global commodities market completely out of whack uh, completely out of whack look at the price of oil some of that is due to recession fears and inflation in the federal reserve a lot of it though has to do with the us and allied price cap on russian oil so if you're saying russian oil um, you know $60 price cap that's going to affect global markets it's affecting how the gulf is thinking about it it's affecting how opec's thinking about it when you think about global wheat prices Okay, well, Ukraine, one of the largest wheat exporters in the world. Russia, one of the largest wheat exporters in the world. Uh, the Black Sea Grain Initiative seems to be every month that's up for renewal. Is it going to be renewed? Is it not? What can Ukrainian farmers actually plant? You start to look around the world and how these things affect it. It's still, it's still there in the price of wheat, soybeans, all these other agricultural commodities that we're seeing. So there are a lot of different reasons to pay attention to this war and to understand that we really are imminently going into a new stage where Ukraine is going to try to push back and take some of this territory back. And whichever way it goes, we could talk about the different scenarios. Um, That's gonna mean major change at a global level and we shouldn't ignore it just because the war has been on for over a year now.
0: And we'll continue to keep our eye on it uh, thanks to your newsletter and covering the situation. So I do wanna talk about the US economy really quickly. I don't necessarily need to get into Fed policy and especially the debt ceiling drama. But let's just talk about the U.S. consumer, U.S. residential housing, and U.S. commercial real estate. So just let's keep it with real estate and the consumer. Where are you seeing the U.S. economy? Are we, It's clear that Q2 now at this point is not going to be the start of the recession. I think the April and the early May data is telling us that GDP growth will be positive for this quarter. But how is this set up for the back half of the year and next year, just looking at uh, the consumer and real estate?
1: Real estate is a math question. So that's just if the Fed has interest rates at this level or higher for a prolonged period of time, that's going to affect... You know, interest rates across the board, especially in real estate, and different investors in real estate are going to, you know, make decisions based on that. So, in some ways, that's relatively easy. And that's why you're seeing the slowdown in commercial real estate. It's why you're seeing such weakness, I think, in general. Um, I was just talking to Alf over at the Macro Compass, and he was on my podcast, and he was talking about how, you know, median home prices are down 15% from the peak last year. So, in general, like, I think you're going to see continued weakness in real estate. Um, what is not mathematical is the sentiment of the U.S. consumer. There is nothing you can look at there that's going to predict how a consumer is going to consume. And the U.S. consumer continues to consume sort of far greater than I think most economic models said that they could. Some of that has to do with full employment and labor and things like that. And I think the Fed is is watching that cl- uh, closely. I'm also reminded of a colleague of mine who um, he, he always jokes, but it's not really a joke. He always says, never short fat people which I mean to say, you know, if, if the consumer is consuming just because you think that there are high interest rates or there's trouble in these different parts of the market, if the consumer is consuming, like that's probably going to drive things. And that's where I'm at right now. Um, I'm sure eventually we'll reach a point where the U.S. consumer decides that it's too expensive or has too much pressure, but he or she has not reached that point right now. So we have this very interesting disjuncture where, yeah, you've got flashing red signals in regional banks and in real estate markets and things like that. You've got the Fed, which is obsessed with inflation. It can't come down fast enough. It's not decelerating fast enough. But then you've got basically full employment and you've got the U.S. consumer, okay, like the U.S. consumer will complain about inflation, but it's still out there spending, um, and is still, you know, living like things are good. Maybe they're putting it on the credit card, but in general, the U.S. consumer is still consuming. So it's a mixed picture. Um, you know, uh, I don't, I don't like betting when is there going to be a recession or not. A recession is just a technical term for when the economy starts to contract. Portions are going to contract. Portions are going to expand, and that's where we are right now. We're in this in-between phase. I can tell you, in general, at CI, we are positioned um, in the short term. We think the recent sort of upswing uh, is maybe a little bit overdone, but sort of next six to 12 months, we're, we're more optimistic than most. We sort of look at the inventory cycle. You look at these signals from the U.S. consumer. It doesn't look to me like the sky is falling by any means.
0: Jacob Shapiro, thank you so much for joining us again today at the Bitcoin Layer. Please tell our audience where they can find your quality information online.
1: Thanks, Nick. Uh, it's Our website is cognitive.investments. Uh, our free newsletter is the Global Situation Report. Uh, the Global Situation Report is based on the CI Knowledge Platform, which is a subscription access um, thing. Um, but you can find information at the website or you can email me directly at jacob at cognitive.investments if you wanna tell me Um, that you're interested in those things, or if you want to tell me how wrong I am about any of the things I just said. I actually actually love mail that tells me I'm wrong. I learned something from it. So feel free to reach out.
0: Excellent. And definitely go follow Jacob on Twitter. He has a great podcast as well that summarizes uh, the major topics that he's writing about on a weekly basis. Jacob, thanks again for joining us here at the Bitcoin Layer.
1: Thanks, Nick. Good to be with you. See you soon.
2: The Bitcoin Layer is sponsored by Foundation Devices. Foundation Devices are the creators of the Passport Bitcoin hardware wallet, the Bitcoin hardware wallet that you already know how to use Guys, it's got a gorgeous design. It's got a very sleek interface, very great screen, directional pad that everyone knows how to use. It makes Bitcoin storage easy and accessible to just about everybody. If you've been put off in the past from taking your Bitcoin off exchanges, which we highly advise that you do, your Bitcoin isn't really there. These are fractionally reserved institutions. Look no further, this is extremely simple. Everyone already knows how to use it right out of the box. And better yet, you can get $10 off your purchase when you use code BitcoinLayer at checkout. Go to the slash foundation to get yours today.